I want to welcome everybody to the Orton Family Foundation's Heart and Soul Talks Conference Call Series. When we focus on key tools and solutions aimed at building better communities through empowering residents to plan their future based on what matters most to them. My name is Fran Stoddard, and today we will focus on community network analysis, a key tool of Community Heart and Soul, the Orton Foundation's signature community development and planning methodology. Community network analysis helps you bring fresh, new voices and solutions to the table. It's a powerful way to reach and understand who lives, works, and plays in your town. Today we've brought together Orton staff along with people from towns who have been through the heart and soul process, folks with insight from the front line. On today's program, we'll explore how the community network analysis works, how to do it, and how it can continue to serve your town for years to come. We'll hear from Elise Montez-Criego, Director of Programs at the Orton Family Foundation and a former Planning Director and Economic Development Coordinator who has worked directly with heart and soul communities to develop and refine the model over the past six years. Hi, Elise. Hello. I think she's there. There she is. <laughs> and we will also be joined by Alexis Halbert from Paonia, Colorado, and Gabrielle Smith of Essex, Vermont, who will offer their insights into how they use the network analysis in their distinct communities. Welcome, Alexis and Gabrielle. Thank you. Thank you. And we, yeah, you bet. It's great to have you here, Alexis. And Gabrielle. So since we have over 185 folks registered today, we have put our listeners on mute to keep the audio as clean as possible. But please stay engaged with the Google document. In your email is a link to that document. It's a shared online uh, document in real time for note-taking and questions. You can open that in your browser to follow along as Orton's Caitlin Davison takes notes. You can also add your own comments or questions to the document at any time. It's good to skim through now um, and see the questions that are already there to avoid redundancy. If you have a question during the call, please enter it there. We hope you also share your wisdom, comments, and examples. The, con the document will stay up after the call for your continued input and references. In a few days, we'll also send a link to that document and podcast to all the participants. Since the Google Doc can only handle 50 people as active contributors to the document at a time, if you aren't adding to it um, by using the edit button that you'll see there, please close out and reopen the document in the read-only mode so you let other people uh, in there to edit and add their comments. If you have any trouble with a Google Doc during the call, just click the refresh icon and that should do it. So, on to our guests. Elise Montez-Criego is Orton's Director of Programs. Nationally recognized in the field, Elise has a bachelor's degree in environmental design, urban and regional planning, and a master's degree in public administration. Elise is a member of the Placemaking Leadership Council and Places Advisory Board. Over the past six years, she has served as a project manager, guiding several towns in community heart and soul, and has been key in the development of this method. She's been closely involved in the content and creation of the Heart and Soul Field Guide. Among other accolades, her planning projects have won her honors from organizations including the American Planning Association, the State of Colorado, and the Air Force Center for Environmental Excellence. Welcome, Elise. 
Thanks, friend. And hello, everyone. Um, it's such an honor to have so much interest in our community network analysis tool. Um, as Fran mentioned, the tool was initially developed for our partner towns as we are implementing our heart and soul process. Um, and at Wharton, we believe that communities are at their best when all residents have a voice in their collective future. And so from that, we really have um, three main principles in which the tool really helped to implement, and that is to involve everyone, focus on what matters, and play the long game. So in order to do that, we developed the Community Network Analysis Tool, and um, it's meant for a team of people to use and examine who lives and works and plays in their community. Um, it has instructions on how to identify missing voices and ways to engage them. What it doesn't have is an exhaustive list of engagement techniques to just tick from. It does help you discover what works best for your town. Um, and so I want to revisit and just reemphasize team. You can be an individual that begins this effort, but it's really important to collect more people to get more insight. So it's important that the community network analysis not be um, only done by one or two people. Um, the more diverse your group is, the better your results will be. Um, so we believe that who's reached um, in your process is really a reflection of who's doing the outreach. Um, and so you may find that you'll have a core group of people that take the community network analysis and do the steps um, and find that the results help you identify who else is in the community that you can bring on and then revisit the tool and the steps to fully flesh out who missing voices are in your community. And so we mentioned that um, our our partner towns use the community network analysis, but it really can be used by anybody that's looking to hear from more than the same 10 people or to really harness the power of human capital. So groups like funders and grant makers or policy makers, community organizers or more, um, really can benefit from this tool. Now before I dive into the different five steps for the tool itself, I just want to um, point out that when we use the term outreach or engage, we mean that to be more than just getting like one-way input. Um, it's about really building connections and relationships in the heart and soul process. Relationship development is really key. And so when you gather information, you want to make sure that that information feeds into action, and you need to build, develop relationships to make sure those actions can happen. And so there are five steps to the community network analysis, and I will note that this is um, a tool that will continue to be revised over time as we learn more and more about how it's applied and used in communities and where it could be improved. Um, so that said, the first step is to use local knowledge combined with census data, and I just want to reemphasize that you're combining local data with um, national or state-level data, and not just one over the other. Um, and You'll do this to really identify who's in your community, and it'll help you identify your hard-to-reach or your missing voices like single moms and dads or refugees or homeless or youth populations. The second step is to identify networks and network locations. And I, I mention locations because formal groups are really easy to find the, form, the networks that they belong to, whether it's PTOs or the Rotary Club or something like that. But informal networks are a little more difficult and elusive, and so you want to find locations for where they're at. So, for example, um, if your target audience is your homeless residents, you may find that a faith-based groups are a great network connection. That's more of a formal network. Whereas youth, if you're not able to go through the local school to get connection with the youth, you may have to go to a location, which might be the skate park. 
Um, the third step is to find network connectors. And uh, these are essentially trusted members in the community that uh, are already connected with your missing or your underrepresented voices. And for those of you that can um, get to the Google Doc, uh, there is a graphic on there that we've put to just kind of help reemphasize how some people can be overlooked and others are great to have in your process. And so if you can see that graphic, there's a, there's a name of April on there, and she's in the center. She's kind of the honeybee of all of these different um, various networked groups. She's a great person to bring in as a network connector, but you also don't want to overlook or underestimate the impact that Pete and Beth can bring because Pete's connected to the underrepresented or missing voices and no one else is. So you want to make sure to capitalize on those two people that can network um, back and forth between those groups. Um, and so then, again, if you have a homeless population, you may be working through a faith-based group and your network connector might be the local deacon or pastor, which was the case in some of our partner towns. And if you're, so the next step, the fourth step, before I go in more detail on three and spend all my time there, um, the fourth step is to identify communication opportunities. And these are really the channels that people use um, for their everyday communication purposes. And this is, again, why we don't give you an exhaustive list to pick from, because it's really up to you to tar find your target audiences. And in the same sense of going to the people versus asking them to come to you, you don't want to develop tools and expect people are going to use them. You want to use tools that your target populations are already using. And so sometimes you may actually need to go out and talk to them and ask them, what is it that you typically use to get your information? For the homeless population, it might be word of mouth through a trusted network connector. For the youth, it might be Facebook or also word of mouth. Um, single moms and single dads might also be Facebook. Um, and so what you want to do with this step is really find overlap and leverage your um, outreach approaches, but also to remember to use messaging that applies to your different audiences. You don't want to just blast out information to all different audiences and hope that they all understand and, make, and have it resonate with them. The fifth step is to identify engagement opportunities. And this includes both the engagement approach, but also the venue. You really want to make sure you find places that you can connect with people that they feel safe and comfortable, especially if you're reaching vulnerable populations. So in one project town that we worked with, the homeless population met at the local church in the community room, and they had a group dialogue, like an affinity group dialogue. In another town, we used a block party with the Hispanic population where their legal status was of a real concern, so they had... Um, people from immigration and the police department and various other organizations come in plain clothes. So there was a sense of security that they weren't going to be taken away or deported from that block party. Um, I also saw there's a question out there about how we incentivized participation, and I would say that you want to actually look to your audiences and, and determine what are the incentives that make sense for them in order to come. So you're not just providing them and hoping that it matches with what their need is. If you've got single moms and single dads, you might find that daycare might be a real incentive. Others, it might be a $5 gas voucher or free food um, can really be important. And so another, um, when you think about engagement opportunities, you also want to look to how you're engaging not for your process, but creating networks and bridging um, relationships in your community. So you could have the seniors at the high school have lunch with the seniors at the Senior Citizen Center um, and gather information from their stories um, essentially that way. And 
we're not going into our community heart and soul process methods, but we really encourage storytelling as a method of, of engagement um, to really help people feel comfortable with the input that they're sharing. And so in conclusion, um, the, once completed, your community network analysis can be used to monitor how, how inclusive your engagement efforts are, um, but also what outreach tools work best. This helps you connect more effectively and efficiently with residents in the future and build relationships that strengthen the fabric of your community along the way. Thank you so much, Elise, for grounding us in uh, really what uh, community network analysis is and a little bit about how it works. Uh, now we'll explore how it's been used on the ground in, in more detail with um, two of our folks that have been very involved in this process. First, I'd like to welcome Alexis Halbert. Born in the Bahamas, Alexis has also lived in Chicago, Ann Arbor, where she received a degree in globalization and natural resource management. She lived in Oregon and the San Francisco Bay Area, where she picked up a certification in project management. More recently, she landed in the North Fork Valley of Colorado, where she served as a project coordinator for North Fork Heart and Soul, as well as served as the president of the Paonia Chamber of Commerce. She is now associate publisher of High Country News Magazine. Alexis's diverse experience in project management for nonprofits and private businesses helped her in moving the North Fork Valley through an extensive heart and soul process. Welcome, um, Alexis, and uh, go ahead and tell us about your, your experiences and your key points. Great. Thank you, Fran. Um, so I live in the North Fork Valley in Colorado. It is um, central western Colorado, and it is made up of three towns, uh, Paonia, Hotchkiss, and Crawford. Um, they uh, range in size from 300 people to 1,500 people, and our surrounding area regionally is about 18, sorry, uh, 9,000 people total. Um, we are a coal mining, ranching, and farming community, um, and have been since the late 1800s. There has been some, some diversification now a little bit in industry, but we still rely on those, those primary industries for our jobs. We have a little bit of an older demographic, um, and when you talk about diversity around here, we did have someone uh, during our project once say, well, we've got tons of diversity. We have at least 20 churches. Um, so we have um, some representation of different um, ethnic groups, um, but really not very many folks out here um, our way. Um, we are a little bit remote, um, and but very beautiful. We have very strong community connections um, as well as very strong community divisions. Um, as we saw as we went through our project, um, you know, people who have lived in this valley for five generations versus newcomers who have maybe only been here one or two generations. Um, and one of the challenges we faced was there was not a lot of crossover uh, in communication between certain communities. Uh, there's not a strong history of planning in our community, although as we went through the heart and soul process, all of the town as well as the county plans were on the table, um, which was very helpful for us. Uh, we also have a limited capacity in our town governments um, and in our countywide development resources. That was a piece that we really tried to pay attention to throughout our heart and soul process. Um, so how we did it? We um, started off by making use of the network of people who had gotten together um, in the Valley to go uh, to sort of originally apply for the Heart and Soul Grant um, when we applied four years ago. 
And that was about 60 people who kind of followed us through the process of application. And we ended up with, I'd say, maybe 20 to 25 people at one of our first meetings when we did our community network analysis. Um, the approach that we took was um, we went into the library, we completely covered one of the walls with paper and uh, utilized you know, the, the information and the relationships of those people to identify um, the individuals, the organizations, the businesses, as well as the, as the industries um, that are in our valley, um, really what our, our assets are, our social capital, um, as well as sort of, you know, putting special emphasis on, like Elise said, the people who were the connectors between those um, people, organizations, and industry. And from there, we decided we were sort of, you know, very new in our project. Um, you know, now that we sort of have a, a little bit of a map to go off of, how do we start um, setting this community network analysis in motion? Um, this, I, I really found that the process was, um, it was not a static process. It was a very dynamic process. Um, it was iterative. So once we kind of had that first layer of the diagram, it was constantly changing over time and being added to and sort of subtracted to as we went out into the community and did some exploration. Um, one of the first things we did was we, we worked together on what we called our post office speech. Um, and we were laughing at first because, you know, typically it's called an elevator speech. Um, but there's only one elevator in our whole valley, and I think it only goes one floor. So we don't get to use the elevator speech very often. Um, but everybody does go to the post office. Um, and we... We started off by by asking those 20-some people who were in the community network analysis to kind of introduce the project to the community. So as they were out and about in the community, they could talk to people about what it is the project was and what it is that we were trying to achieve. Um, as we kind of dug in a little bit more, um, it was the role of the project team and the CAT and the coordinators to kind of dive a little bit more deeply into the community network analysis. Um, and we did this in addition to sort of conversations. We did do more formal presentations, for example, going to the Kiwanis breakfast um, in the morning. Um, but we also found that we really needed to quickly diversify sort of our engagement tools to start activating the community network analysis. Um, so one example, you know, many people in our community enjoy the, the process of Heart and Soul and enjoyed sort of the, the development and, and seeing it progress over time. We also had a lot of community members who are very action-oriented. Um, so one of the ways we started um, with that was we, we went to Hodgkiss that was in the middle of a downtown development process. Um, we contributed flowers um, and helped with the planning of some beautification in the downtown and used that as an entry point to find more people who were interested in, in local planning and, and beautification. Um, and the great thing was then we got press from that. Um, one of the people on the Downtown Development Committee also runs a small local newspaper. Um, and we invited, you know, press when almost when we did any kind of um, in larger engagement event to really try to cover all of our bases and getting the word out and how it was we were we were trying to, you know, really reach out to the community and get folks involved. Um, let's see. Um, we have probably diversified our engagement tools to our network analysis. I'd say we probably developed maybe 25 different tools that we used. We really found that we had such a diverse community that, that it was, you know, there were many different ways to talk to people. So we did everything from actually creating a film um, to working with youth students 
um, to, you know, incentivizing for opportunities with um, gift certificates. And even we did a slice of the pie series where we bring pies out to events. Um, I'd say in general, um, don't be afraid of controversy or questions. Um, we had a, a negative letter to the editor when we first started our project. Um, we used that, that uh, LTE in order to actually reach out to that person who we might not have otherwise um, been able to have a conversation with. Um, so we really found that addressing any questions quickly and um, directly were, were very positive. Um, and let's see here. We can probably answer some during the Q&A, but, you know, certainly sum up as, as you wish, um, Alexis. Yeah, so, so I just again wanna, wanna say that different people come into the community network analysis at different times. And to not be afraid of that process. Um, and also that some people will never engage no matter what you do, but just make sure that people have plenty of opportunities. Um, and that means really getting out to the community, um, and meeting them where they're at. Um, conversations will happen whether you start them or not, and to kind of quote Orton, communicate early and often. Um, that's really important part of the process. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alexis. And um, Gabrielle Smith is with us. There might actually be some some similar responses because they've they've both worked on this on the ground. Uh, so to talk about her experience with the community network analysis in an East Coast community is Gabrielle Smith, who serves as a founding member of the Heart and Soul Project in the town of Essex, Vermont. Being immersed in community engagement and collaboration is a natural for Gabrielle, who has spent the past several decades doing just that in small towns and cities in Vermont and Wisconsin. She served the state of Wisconsin as the Associate Director of the Alliance for Wisconsin Youth, supporting community coalitions throughout the state. Since moving to Vermont in 2006, she worked with school-based health promotion projects. She joined the Orton Family Foundation just last year, where she is serving as Senior Associate for Strategic Partnerships. Welcome, Gabrielle. Thanks. And um, I know a lot has been kind of revealed about community network analysis, so why don't you add to that and what your experience with it has been? Great. Some of what I'll have to say might touch on some new points, and some of it may reinforce some of what you've heard already from uh, Elise and Alexis. I live in uh, actually two municipalities at the same time. My house is in both the town of Essex and the village of Essex Junction, which are overlapping municipalities. They total about, about 20,000 people, about just under half of whom live in the village. We're just outside of the Burlington area in northwest Vermont. We applied for and got a grant from the Orton Family Foundation in 2011, so we uh, were funded for a two-year process, although that um, work is still ongoing in our community actively. And over the course of that time, developed six community values, which we are using in a variety of ways in our town. Um, to give you a little background on our community network analysis, we um, we are a highly white community, which is not unusual in this part of the world. Vermont is uh, primarily white Caucasian. We are slightly more diverse than the average Vermont town at probably about 92% white. Um, we have some new Americans who've arrived in our community over the past several years, especially Bhutanese, Nepali, West African, and Eastern European, among many, many others. Uh, we have uh, an interesting mix of a highly educated upper middle class um, residents due to our proximity to Burlington, 
an IBM plant, universities nearby, but also lower and middle class and, and poor and many who are struggling to make ends meet um, in our town that has a lot of steadily rising costs of living, not much affordable housing stock in our town, stagnant wages, and really modest offerings of public transportation and kind of a weak infrastructure of sidewalks and biking routes. Although that uh, got a lot of uh, energy and traction through our process with Heart and Soul, and we're seeing some um, some movement in our um, in local planning and development in our town around uh, more bikes and sidewalks. So just to give you a little background, all of this was really critical in us, for us in our community network analysis that we did actually before we even began our heart and soul process. Um, similar to Alexis, there were many of us who gathered in a room, about 16 of us, residents and also key staff who worked in, worked in our town uh, came together to do that initial analysis. Uh, we um, brought a lot of materials with us into the room that we used in our work. Um, we had uh, census data, school demographics, business listings, service clubs, uh, local newspapers, calendars um, that were helpful and looking at websites. So we all tried to come as prepared as we could with uh, sort of a already uh, listings and webs of information that we could begin to work with. We looked at people, places, and events, who lives and works in our town, um, and uh, just began to map out names and, um, and groups that, uh, that we all were aware of and learning about in our community. We looked at places. Where do people gather, both formal and informal? Formal places, actual buildings like the Grange and the VFW, school and community sports fields and theaters, libraries, and our senior center, just to name a few, and informal places, the coffee shop, Dunkin' Donuts, bars, restaurants, parks, um, community swimming pools, just to name a few. And we also looked at events from very visible events like our annual Memorial Day parade to really small gatherings like book groups and people with like-minded hobbies or game interests, and seasonal activities like sports and the arts. Um, we have active local theater, for example. Um, libraries and local parks and recreation departments were also great sources of information for these kind of events and, um, and, and groupings of people who get together. It's amazing what you can learn about your town in a process like this. We also realized that the 16 of us we didn't represent a lot of the people who live in our town. It felt like a big group, and yet, at the same time, we were not representational of our town. Um, and that was really important that we were aware of that. Uh, it's often difficult to see who you don't realize is there. Um, we realized a lot of us in the room were, moved in a lot of, in the same circles. There were lots of places and events and services we never used, the laundromat the food pantry, except those of us who volunteered there, bus stops, the senior bus, and the services who are available for people who are differently abled, poor, on parole, people need translation services, just to name a few. And I only mention this to, to, to note that we were aware of it so that we could hopefully continue to, to, to seek out um, those, um, those missing voices in our community. Um, we, uh, throughout, in our CNA, we identified some groups that we knew we needed to reach out to. Um, 
landowners and developers, business owners, especially those in our community who weren't locally owned, uh, mostly those kind of mid to large ones, and the few farmers and others who work the land who still remain in our town. We had some successes. We got one of our, our local farmers to, to join our heart and soul team, and she was very active. Uh, and others that were, we, despite efforts like developers, uh, just never really got them to the table. Um, it was mo it motivated us to continually invest our time and energy to learn about other people and networks in our town and how to reach them. And as Elise noted, um, to invite them in a, to be a part of the process in, uh, in a way that's respectful and welcoming for those people. Um, it's very true. You can spend a lot of time on outreach and, 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 and designing activities for people, and then they don't come, and you ask yourself, well, why didn't they come? And that's, you know, you learn quickly that that's often just you didn't match the right activity or strategies for the people that you, that you were trying to welcome into that event. Um, we used um, the network analysis information often. It helped us to design many of our outreach and communication strategies. One of our key story gathering strategies is a great example. We uh, created neighborhood conversations. These were very well uh, designed and formatted by uh, a local expert in our community. They were held in homes, businesses, local libraries and schools, and hosted by local nonprofits. We created actually a chart with all of our different target audiences. So we had it by geographic sectors, socioeconomic, and examples that Elise and Alexis both noted, families with young children, businesses, seniors, new Americans. We had, we had quite a, a, you know, an extensive chart that we tracked. And we um, noted as the conversations were held over the course of several months who was coming, and then we would uh, target and refine our outreach during the process to reach those who weren't yet participating. We did a lot of individual outreach to build relationships with key people within a targeted sector who were trusted by people in that group to try and help us build that connection. That would then lead to the opportunity to gather their stories in a way that was safe and respectful for them. For example, we had a neighborhood conversation for gay, lesbian, transgender, and questioning residents, and this is a group that continues to meet, by the way and one for Bhutanese that used translators and a specially designed format that was co-created with one of their leaders. And we also designed uh, a special conversation for people who were severely developmentally disabled and they had a connection to our local library. Uh, so I'll end with a short story and a quote that sticks with me. As I noted earlier, there were 16 people in the room when we did our initial network analysis. Many of them had lived in Essex for decades and some for generations, and all of us were pretty active in our community. We thought we knew the people in geography pretty well. But as it turned out, only one of those 16 people knew we had a mobile home community in Essex with over 60 families living there, a whole mini community largely unseen, and this is a physical place in our town that none of us literally saw. My lesson learned, keep looking, Pay attention to who's in your town and ask questions to learn more. Keep expanding your network and knowledge and encourage others who are interested in this work so that when you do come to the community network analysis, you have as much information as possible for that initial mapping. And also in that process, it's likely you'll begin to build relationships with new people and networks along the way, which is essential to the work of Community Heart and Soul, as Elise noted, and to you know, really much of community building work. 
Um, update your network analysis periodically, incorporating the new information and connections you're making. And I'll end with this quote, which is from a poster. It's been around for a few decades now, entitled How to Build Community, which was uh, the poster was created by the Syracuse Cultural Workers. Seek to understand, learn from new and uncomfortable angles, Know that no one is silent, though many are not heard. Work to change this. Thanks, Ray. Terrific. Thank, thank you, Gabrielle. Well, hopefully you all feel a little bit grounded in what this process is all about. Uh, we're going to get to our questions. I know that um, some some people have gotten in there and are, are answering some of those, but let's let's hit the uh, your questions at this time. One, I think that this can be pretty quickly in answered, and I think that everybody would agree. Paul from Arizona asks if this process can be done easily and quickly by a busy staff member running a one-person community engagement program. It's what I've heard from you, Gabrielle, and from Alexis, is that it takes really a community, and it sounds really dynamic and kind of a fun project for people to get together, but it doesn't sound like something that one person can do. Uh, Alexis, do you want to address that quickly? Um, yeah, absolutely. No, I don't think it's a process that one person could do. Um, it really required, like you said, Fran, the whole community to get out there and to do it over time. And, and we found that overall, in, in terms of the heart and soul process, this is one of the places that required the most attention and time. Okay. Terrific. Um, Elise, any, any follow-up to that? And actually, in, in kind of also looking at this, someone asked, can you use it at the county level uh, from Carroll in New York? I'm not sure if this is, um, if it would be different in that way. But again, this is, would you say this is more of a community committee process? Uh, yes, this is Elise. Um, so back to Paul's question in Arizona, I think you can start with one person, but you can't complete it with one person. You know, it's like starting with a small group of people to identify who else needs to be on your team to revisit the steps and tool, um, I think is really important. And then so at a county level, um, I would say yes, since I started to respond in there, so in the Google Doc, if there are people that can't access the Google Doc, um, at a county level, I would say it's just an expanded version of the community network analysis where you're doing this based on populated regions in your county, and then you're helping to create network connections within a, a populated area, but also between populated areas. And so it's kind of, you just create a hybrid version of the CNA, if you will. Okay, terrific. There, there were several questions, um, certainly about engagement and uh, just this this is kind of the beginning of engagement, and we're actually going to have another uh, one of these calls way out, but in August, uh, that, that looks at engagement um, in particular. But we had a, a couple of things, and I think that they were addressed on some level. Uh, one uh, from Melissa in, in Georgia, how do we reach out to the most disenfranchised members of our community? And, um, you know, and even how do you capture that intentional non-participant uh, because some people just don't want to be involved and often disenfranchised members don't aren't don't want to be involved because they don't feel they're a part of it or they don't have time or, or whatever Gabrielle do you want to just uh, address that uh, again a little bit you started to hint at, at how to reach out to that population 
So I think the community network analysis is a key part of that and really starting to understand who's in your community and how you can be connected to them. And as, you know, Elise so wisely noted, so much of the work of reaching out to disenfranchised members or people who feel unattached or detached or not a part of the decision-making in their, in their community, um, that, that work has to be done. It, it takes some time. And you're, sometimes you're actually, I was saying to a friend, you're actually starting like three steps back because some of those people aren't simply detached. They actually have a history that's not potentially really pleasant. And they may be, as for example, as Elise was talking about, they may have some concerns about legal status. They may have a history of having been approached or tried to be engaged in a way that was really not respectful and that didn't feel welcoming for them. They may have at times where they tried to speak up and weren't heard. So just listening, asking a lot of questions, um, and, and trying very much to, as we kind of say, uh, meet, meet people where they're at. You know, we spent a lot of time uh, trying to very, sometimes carefully, make those connections and start to build some relationships so that we could make that initial approach successful. It was a lot of it sometimes was gathering information in advance of even that first contact. And then, of course, as Fran said, there, there are people who are, are intentionally unengaged, and uh, sometimes they're approachable, and sometimes they, they are, it is intentional. And so we left those, some of those folks, you know, be. Yeah, uh, it's you okay. Know. You can't it's get okay. everybody. You people, can't get every single people person. people are living out in rural Essex on a dirt road because that's where they want to be, and they don't want to be involved in this kind of thing. And that's you know, you have to respect that, too. Right. Yeah. But it seems that the network analysis really looks at groups and trying to make yeah. those connections. And don't assume because they're out there that they don't want to be engaged, but sometimes you find that out and, you know, you let it go. Terrific. In, in that same vein, sort of, uh, Megan from Maryland has asked, how can you ensure a wide and diverse turnout? And then she adds to that, and then how do you ensure that you capture their attention and concerns through fun, engaging activities? So how do you, you've got this group of people, how do you know that the activity that you are offering is going to work or not work? Uh, Elise, you want to chime in there? Yeah. Um, so I think the important thing here, too, is that um, for certain cultures and certain um you know, groups of people going to meetings or going to public events can be, um, you're trying to change their culture, I guess is what I'm saying, which you don't want to do. You want to try to meet people where they're at. Um, and so when you think about diverse turnout and you look around it to the public meeting maybe that you have and you realize you're missing some of your demographics, take note of who's missing and you might need to do additional outreach to those groups in a place where they feel safe and comfortable. Again, back to what I was talking about in my presentation. Um, and I think when you were, are thinking about engaging activities, obviously free food, you hear that everywhere you go. Give people free food, that's a great way to get turnout. Um, and then fun, you're thinking about the types of activities. So in some of our project towns, we had, um, if you had block parties, it wasn't just there passing out information about the land use code or the trash ordinance. You had bounce castles and, again, free food and other interactive things that all ages could um, inter in engage with. Um, so, yeah, you're thinking again about your audiences and being very intentional about what you're doing and not just building it and hoping people will come. Terrific. And um, 
There is also from uh, Deborah from D.C. has asked, uh, again, an engagement question. What's the most effective way to engage residents who do not have Internet access or active or are active on social media? It seems that a lot of engagement now is indeed on social media through um, email, et cetera. So is, are there thoughts about how to engage people who, or maybe even TV or radio who don't have access to that? Uh, Alexis, I think your community is most out in the country, so you might have um, run into this issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, diversifying uh, the ways that, that you engage is really important and, um, you know, just really trying to do a lot of engagement. So we've made sure that we had, you know, articles um, in all the newspapers as much as we could when they came out so we could reach people who are still reading our, our weekly county newspaper. Um, again, showing up to places. As I said, my community is very action-oriented, so getting involved in things that are already going on in the community um, is a great way to reach people. And then if you are able to do that with some of the people you've identified as connectors, it's a really great step to um, to build on, you know, on the, the next level of engagement. We did things like... Um, you know, art projects with kids. We even partnered with our local brewery uh, to create a beer. Um, it was called Love It or Leave It, and it gave people an opportunity on the back of their beer coasters just to write um, what they loved about the community and what they would leave. Um, and that ended up as this sort of mural um, that was up in the, the local tasting room um, that was very analog. You know, you um, you could walk in there and, and still participate. Um, we also got... Um, writable markers that can write on glass and windows, and we posted those in our town hall. It was, uh, I'd say, probably about 40 feet of windows. And so people had the opportunity then to engage with the particular questions that we had um, up there about what they loved or what, you know, what mattered most to them about the future. And they could draw it. They could write it. Um, so we provided um, many different ways for, for folks to be able to, to engage. Terrific. Thank you. And then, hopefully, you've engaged these people, but how do you make people feel their, participa their participation will make a difference? Abigail from uh, Delaware asked this. I think it's very legitimate. Okay, you want me to get engaged. Will my participation make a difference? Gabrielle? Um, so we, we worked very hard on that, uh, and we had a bit of a history to overcome in ethics of people. I think some people feeling like that was not always the case. Uh, a couple of things that we uh, experimented with that we think were successful was working really hard to ensure that people's input is visible in, in ways like, um, I, I think actually Alexis gave some great examples, but it's using their own language. We tried really hard to reflect back the same type of language and words we saw. We would reuse banners people wrote on at different events. We'd bring them so people could when they come back, they could see something that they had previously done. Um, we uh, we would share things in the paper. We would uh, put those words on flyers. We had a photo booth where people could write their input, and then those pictures would be used both in our promotional materials, on our Facebook page. We'd share them with our partner agencies so people could see that repeatedly over, over time, that, wow, that suggestion or idea I had. And then also in very concrete ways, like if people came to us from an event and there was some energy about an idea or an activity to, to try and help support um, 
you know, making that happen or help them make the connection if it was something that needed to be brought, say, to the municipal government or to a local nonprofit agency. Um, another another factor that I think connects both to this one and to uh, and to Megan's question, uh, I think she's from Maryland, is when you're when you're designing those opportunities for people to participate, it's really important to um, uh, to pay attention to not just not just what you're offering them, but we found a big factor in our community was when we were offering something, and sometimes some of the tools we thought would be so great. Nobody used because let's say we had a meeting that was going to run from 6 to 8.30 and we had uh, um, child care for parents of young children. I don't know about any of you who have children under the age of five, but my kids were in bed at 7. I didn't want them at a meeting until 8.30, child care or no. So we, we, we had to experiment with some of that and really ask ourselves why, why did sometimes what we thought would be a really helpful and engaging way for people to be involved was actually just mismatched. And then we got better at it over time. Terrific. I maybe Elise and Alexis want to add to that and and even begin to get into uh, the, another question that is about creating authentic pride. This um I think what this person is trying to get at, um, he says, I think there's a false goal to attempt directly to create pride in communities. What are concrete ex accomplishments that will naturally lead to a feeling of pride? And I see that in even participation. What is, in other words, what is the impact of a community network analysis? What are the kinds of uh, things that you really feel that, that going through this process is giving back to a community? Elise? Sure. So I can't help but insert our community heart and soul process here because the community network analysis is the tool by which you're really trying to dig and find who else is in your community and how are you going to reach them. But it's the actual method of engagement and not just the venues and everything, but how are you asking them and what are you asking them is really important. And I think in, in doing that, you help the community real, rebuild their narrative. I can't in every community we went to, we asked them, um, tell us about your community. What are you? And they could always tell us what they weren't um, and how what they didn't want to be and the things that they didn't like. And so it was about, you know, almost using like an appreciative inquiry or like the, the positive note. Let's talk about what you do love in your community. And just setting that tone from the beginning of the process actually changed the dynamic in which people um, – really came into the process and then ignited efforts all over the community that we watched happen that were just kind of a byproduct of the excitement from from our heart and soul work. And so, you know, just connecting with people that the CNA helped us, the community network analysis helped us identify, um, but in doing that and helping people feel heard was really, really important. And I think this kind of relates to the previous question, but ways that you can help people feel like their input is still showing up through the process. And we use things like Wordle, um, where you can put information and then create diagrams and send out postcards or actually just show that people's information is somehow logged in a way that um, they feel heard is really important. Um, but then it really helps them, like I said, rebuild that community narrative. And I'm, I'm wondering how this uh, community network analysis can not only be used for the heart, community heart and soul, but even Carol um, expanded on her question about uh, doing this at the county level. She says, I'm involved with a county level group that is focused on pre-grade three and education and children's health. 
couldn't a variety of, of organizations also use a community network analysis and what this is all about for different projects? So other nonprofits or other parts of your community could use something similar to reach out to their constituency? Absolutely, um, I, I think for Gabrielle. sure. Uh, I've worked with a lot of uh, different, I've, I've worked in a lot of different areas. Uh, with you know, talking about health promotion or you know community work, where the the goal, no matter what the topic, is to is to connect with people and to get them involved and interested in the thing you're involved and interested in and wanting them to 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 be a part of. Uh, what I learned through you know I had done this work for 20 years, I found the community network analysis to be one of the most effective. Although it's, it is, as Alexis noted, really time consuming. It's all very, it's so, um, in, it's so intentional and, and it's very uh, complete and it uh, gives you information that is vital to having success in that outreach and that engagement. So I do think, Carol, that you could for sure use it in a, a specific uh, effort like that, so a K-3 educational, a preschool um, conversation in, in, a, in a county or in a community. Because you're, what you're, what you would be doing then is looking at who are the networks and the people and the places and the events, all of those questions that relate to that, to the, to that particular topic. I, I could see it being tailored in that way. Uh, it would also yield you a lot of great information for other projects too. Terrific. Uh, so Alexis and, and Elise, um, have, I have, I'm going to move on to some more technical questions uh, about uh, recommending evaluation to Elise, but there, there might have been some of, in this discussion, uh, did we leave you out? Is there anything we've, we've left out in some of the answers to these questions that, that is burning for any of you? Okay. Um, again, again, I would just go back to the, you know, the question about how do people know their voices are being heard, that, you know, going yeah. back that, to the communicate mm -hmm. um, often, you know, um, and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, again, communicating back and the words that people shared with you is very important, but really keeping that those communication channels open so people are seeing that. Um, we also did um, a lot of verification of what we heard um, as we went forward, and, and that was incredibly powerful because there were a lot of times where people were like, well, you heard us the first time, but when you're trying to, you know, take it and combine ideas and concepts with others, that it didn't quite turn out the way we had intended it. So we found that doing some verification, which we did um, on a survey with our initial set of values that we had, we had found that, you know, was shared across the community. Um, that verification survey was incredibly important for the process and it let people know that we were, you know, that that, that mattered, that getting it right mattered. Hmm. And, and it sounds like it, it is indeed iterative, and you keep expanding on this, uh, your, what, what has been called CNA, the Community Network Analysis, that it, it, keeps, um, it keeps changing as you learn more about your community. Yes, and, and we didn't say end up with like a formal product where we would be able to share that with another organization during the work. We really ended up more building social capital and connections. Um, you know, and while I, you know, the Heart and Soul Project has, has ended, um, I still find myself talking to a lot of people in my community who are trying to take on valley-wide initiatives and helping them to sort out their network analysis and, and, and really just helping them to know the value of doing that outreach and that network. Because many times it's the conversations that happen behind the scenes 
uh, not the ones that happen, you know, in the front that make the difference as to whether something succeeds or fails. Terrific. Uh, there's a more technical question, probably for Elise. Uh, Andrew from Minnesota asks, what do you recommend for evaluating the success of expansive community networking and outreach initiatives? In a way, we've talked anecdotally about what you can understand about looking at this and how it helps. But is there, do you have other um, evaluation recommendations, Elise? Of the network analysis itself? Yeah, well, the question is of, of any um, expansive outreach initiative or community networking. Is well, there something or, or yeah, maybe it's... Go ahead. I would just say, um, so from our work, when you're out collecting information and building relationships with your community, um, the network analysis is meant to be sort of a, a guidepost to check back in to say, have we heard, did we actually reach the people we thought we were going to reach? And so the network analysis almost becomes its own evaluative tool in your approach and what you're doing out in the community. Um, so you can use it in a lot of different ways, um, but it kind of becomes this baseline that you can keep checking back in um, as you're continuing to reach out and engage your community. But in terms of anything else beyond that, um, we haven't created any additional evaluation method to track the network analysis. Okay. Any other thoughts about evaluation per se from Elisa or Alexis? I think that any. I mean, I mean Gabrielle. Sorry. It, it would be. I mean, as you noted, it would be anecdotal. Uh, mm -hmm. I do think that a lot of. I would attribute a lot of our successes in outreach and engagement directly back to our community network analysis tool because it was where we started, and those were the people we had those preliminary conversations with, as, as Alexis said, and helped us to make sure that we, we weren't wasting a lot of our precious time and energy and resources on strategies that were kind of doomed to fail because we didn't take the time to find out what, that, uh, what those audiences would, what would be appealing to them. Right. And I guess, um, so Fran, one more comment. This is Elise again sure. in terms of the network analysis and when you're out using this to build relationships and gather data, um, you know, at some point people will say, well, how do you know if you've gathered enough data? And I think when you know that there are particular issues in a community, like one of our towns, affordable housing was an issue. And as they gathered a ton of data, they kept, you know, distilling and going through that and sorting through it. And they said, we haven't heard anything about affordable housing. And they went back to their network analysis, and they're like, huh, lo and behold, we haven't actually connected with anybody that would have this as an issue on their radar. And so it really helped by looking at the data and going back to the CNA to reflect on how well they were actually um, doing in getting to, to their target audiences. And that takes me that, to – yeah. Oh, I'd like to just add one quick thing about that, um, which ended up being critical for us, which is we did put demographic data and questions on some of our surveys. So uh, we were actually able to say, you know, uh, how many coal miners did we talk to? How many farmers did we talk to? How old were they? Um, and look back at our, our network analysis and see whether or not we were tracking. Um, and look at our, our countywide and community demographics to make sure that we were, we were hitting folks as well. And that was a really useful tool and it ended up being very relevant when uh, our community leaders were, were asking us, you know, who did you really talk to? And uh, that brings me to you know, kind of from the beginning, this demographic data. Uh, Bob from Ontario asked about the equivalent 
Canadian demographic data source. I know that uh, some people have added some good tips about how to get demographic data uh, for this, but when you start, are there other recommendations of places where you can get this starter demographic data to, be, to begin your analysis? Uh, Elise, maybe um, back to you. Yeah, um, I, so I have a response in the Google Doc, but it's not specific to Canadian demographic data. Um, but the, the Community Network Analysis Tool, we actually outlined several free tools, um, and then there's a couple that you can pay um, for uh, to use. And so the, the Esri Tapestry data, which is really, really um, robust with data and actually tells you a lot of the ways that people get their information, but it's not necessarily always applicable to smaller communities. Um, that one is like $50, and I'm just uh, going through American Fact Finder is another um, place that you can get information. Headwaters Economics is another, and Data Place. Um, all of those last three that I mentioned are free. Okay, terrific. And just quickly, um, while you all are thinking about a last question of an action that people can take right away to pull together a community network analysis or final thoughts, Terry from California wants to know the software used to draw the diagram with arrows. Now, this actually could have been done in freehand, but um, is there a software that, that you all use to create these uh, beautiful network analysis charts? Uh, so, Fran, you want that to Elise? Yeah. Did, did, you, did you use something in yeah. So yeah, the the graphic that's in the Google in the Google Doc, we just use PowerPoint. Um, but there oh, are okay, other there more sophisticated. Go. Yeah, there's more sophisticated tools out there. Um, depending on your tech savviness and as you're doing a network analysis, um, they can, you can use Partner Tool. Um, I know eDraw is just another kind of form of PowerPoint. Um, I know some of our towns. I know Alexis's group used just Excel and tracking um, groups that way and different spreadsheets in that. Um, so really, you know, whatever level of expertise someone has in whatever program, I think you can manipulate and use it for creating your network analysis stuff. Great, thank you, Elise. Okay, final thoughts, uh, Alexis. What would you What would you advise people do right right off the bat? Um, I would say, you know, reach out to folks who you might not um, think of. Um, and, you know, whether it's asking them for coffee or, you know, to again, to join them in an activity that they're, they might be doing, um, creating those, those new connections are a great way to start. Okay, terrific. Gabrielle? Um, I would say just keep your eyes and ears open. Uh, I found that since going through Heart and Soul, I tend to look at things like the bulletin board in my library to see what groups are meeting fascinating. I had no idea we had a monthly genealogy group or some young adults who meet to play Dungeons and Dragons every Friday night. Just lots of lots of kind of those small interest gatherings and you start to find your eyes are going to those things. So keep looking. Notice who's if you're on a donut run for work one morning, like you may notice some patterns of people hanging out there. Or ask your friends uh, if you observe uh, people getting together at certain places or just start to, to ask questions and and, uh, and keep your eyes and ears open so you can, the more information you have uh, as you go along, you don't, it doesn't have to be that the first step is this, you know, meeting that Alexis and I described. This information gathering can go on for a while that will help you um, when your community is ready to, to do that kind of analysis. You'll have that much more information when you go in. 
And it seems it would paint such a rich picture of your community that you might not have seen before. And Elise, your final thoughts. I think my final thought is, and especially coming from um, having done community engagement efforts before my life at Orton, um, be certain, be really intentional about matching your engagement methods with your target audience to prevent burnout and really get past perceptions of apathy. Um, you know, thinking people don't show up isn't necessarily because they don't care. It may be that the engagement method doesn't match um, the audience. Okay. Thank you, Elise, for your insights and knowledge today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to Alexis Halbert in Paonia, Colorado, and Gabrielle Smith in Shelburne, Vermont. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, it was great to have you both on board. The uh, team at Orton is finishing up actually an updated version of their Community Network Analysis Resource Guide. We'll email you a link to that revised resource in the next few weeks, but you're welcome to check out the current resource guide, which has really a lot of terrific material right now, through the link at the top of your Google Doc. Caitlin has put a link to a very brief survey also at the top of the Google Doc in the announcement section. So we hope you take a moment to complete the survey and tell us about your experience on today's call. It will help us learn how we can make this new series most useful to you. And we hope you add your thoughts and expertise to the Heart and Soul Talk Google document. We all benefit from everybody's comments, answers, and expertise. A podcast of this call and the Google document call notes will be emailed around and posted online. Coming up in just a few weeks on February 26th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time is a community heart and soul training when Orton will offer the first of a series of training webinars on this, what you've been hearing about, Orton's community heart and soul approach. The webinar will offer an overview of and insight into this results-oriented, inclusive approach to community development and planning that you've had a little bit of a taste of today. And for those of you that are very involved in engagement, again, remember that in August there will be another um, call like this one that will be focused on engagement. We thank you for participating. We hope you walk away with some rich ideas to get to know and engage your community. For all of us at the Orton Family Foundation, I'm Fran Stoddard. Hope to see you next time. Bye-bye.